Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And if you're joining us online, good morning to you also. We have a topical message this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 28. That is the last chapter of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. We will stand and read verses 1 through 8. Would you please stand? Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And, pardon me, as he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples' word. Please be seated. Our text is the sixth verse of Matthew 28, just a portion of it. He is not here, for he is risen. Usually, when it comes to the holidays, I continue to preach through whatever book we're going through and not take the time to address a holiday message because most of the time believers know the message just as good as I do and to tell it over and over again it's hard enough to keep your attention on other things and let alone a topic you're very familiar with but this year I've, I've felt a clear leading from the Lord to uh, do a series of topical messages or a string of them and this being the final one is on the resurrection of Christ it is entitled the tombstone of Christ Uh, If there were a tombstone of Christ, what would you put on it? What would its epitaph be? The epitaph is the inscription on a tombstone that tells us a little bit more about the person, commemorates them, uh, more than just the name and the lifespan and a little information. It summarizes with a comment something about this individual. There's a famous one in Arizona in Tombstone on Boot Hill, Tombstone, Arizona. Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. (laughs) Appropriate. Whether that happened or not, it doesn't matter. It's still nice to say and read. A few others, I looked up some, and I just took two. She always said her feet were killing her, but no one believed her. I told you I was ill. 
more to less humorous, but more to the idea. He died with his boots on would be an epitaph you would put on a gravestone. I would suggest you could put, I don't want to talk about it. Or some of you be great, now what? My own epitaph would be, I'll be back with the king. Amen. Amen. Most of these epitaphs give a true or false estimate of the, the dead person, the deceased. But most fail to express any real hope in the afterlife. They really don't, unless from a Christian perspective, a Christian epitaph related to uh, the Bible, of course, is going to give us hope. But most folks don't go that route. Most epitaphs, no matter how clever or beautifully worded, they actually proclaim the power of death, and that's it. That's all you get. But this, if we could put an epitaph on the tombstone of Christ... He is not here. He is risen. There's nothing else like that. The epitaph of Christ is not a religious hope. It's a bare fact. It's just a bare fact. He's not here. And if he was here, you'd be able to produce his body and shoot down our religion right away. And that's when Jesus said, beginning in Jerusalem, preach the message beginning in Jerusalem where my body was entombed. So if anybody wants to challenge the message, a short walk to the tomb. They can see for themselves and that these disciples suffered and died preaching Christ, that they witnessed this bare fact as proof that he was crucified, he was dead three days, and he rose again, is a great challenge to anyone's logic. Not only is it historical and scriptural, but it's a, it's logical when you consider the circumstances surrounding it. Now, I'm not going to get too technical. But here are two pictures that I want to hold up in front of us, word pictures, of course, of the same group of believers. These are uh, the followers of Jesus Christ before his crucifixion, and then they witnessed the crucifixion. The first picture is at, after the crucifixion. There they are, scattered, panicky, behind closed and bolted doors. This is the first picture, fear on every face. Each one of them dejected, hopeless, irretrievably defeated. That's who these men were. They had walked with Christ, they saw the miracles, they heard the teachings, and then he's dead. As I've preached often, they never saw him fail before. He absolutely failed. By allowing himself to be murdered in public. What was everything to them for three years was now a hash, an ash heap of memories. That's all they have is memories. I remember he did this. I remember he did that. But now where is he? He said this. He said that. But now where is he? They were dazed with nowhere to go. And they sat in silence having nothing to say. Too heartbroken to speak. Too much in shock to pray. We don't read about these men praying those three dark days of their life. It was over. Fate had won. Evil prevailed. What was there to say? What was there to pray? What is to live for when the hope is stripped from me? It was over for them. Their faith had been violated. And there they are afraid. Even the day 
The day they hear that he is risen from the grave, they go to the tomb, they look inside, they don't see him even that day. They go to the upper room in Jerusalem and they're still afraid. The door is still locked shut for fear of the Jews. Well, they still loved Jesus like no other. But their faith had fallen short. Their love had not, but their faith did. If you've been serving Christ with your life any long period of any length of time, you've seen action in the faith, you know what it's like to have your faith rocked and still love Jesus Christ. That's the first picture of these men, of these disciples. The second picture, the same group, about three months later, not quite, but almost, no longer sulking behind that barricaded door. They are out in the precincts of the very Jewish temple, the one that uh, they were hiding from the people that ran the temple, that ruled the temple. They were hiding from them, but now, now they're there at the temple. They are men aflame with this love and this superhero courage and confidence in Christ. They have a message unlike ever found in history before. They are fearless, they are vocal, they are joyful, and they are not ashamed. This is the second picture contrasted with the first one. Their intentions now are global. They're not withdrawn and hiding. They are ready to die preaching. They're ready to suffer. There's two different things. I mean, death preaching Christ can be instant and relatively painless or just a short amount of pain, but to suffer also intensifies their witness. So the first picture was one of misery and dead hope. What, what an impact that makes on the heart to have hope taken. The second is the beginning of a marching and a militant church. We say militant, we don't mean militant as the world, using weapons, looking to destroy people's lives any way they can, to take their jobs from them, to take their food from them, to take their life from them. We're living in an age we have to face things like militant homosexuality. They're just not satisfied with being accepted. They want to force you to celebrate them. We have people arguing over what you have to, what you can call me. This kind of insanity doesn't come natural to people. It's, there's an influence. There's a spiritual influence. Well, we have a militant response, and it is truth. It is fact, and it is truth and love with the determination that it comes along with it that says, I don't care if you persecute me for this. This is what I'm going to preach. And this is where we see these men. Something had happened between these two pictures, and we know what it is. Of course, Christ is risen. He is not here. He is risen. He is not dead. This very second, this very moment, he is not dead. So considering these things, it's okay to say, well, what's in it for me? Nothing wrong with saying that. We must see something in Christ for me. This is uh, something that he is very mindful of. John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus said to these disciples, who weren't really, again, ready for this crucifixion, though he tried to prep them for it. He said to them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
Let not your hearts. He has something in it for them. He's not blocking them out. He's bringing them in. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I love this part. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. See, there's something in it for you. It's not selfishness. It's just a reality. How we're built. He says in verse 3 of John's Gospel 14, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. A place for you, receive you. And he says, do myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's talking about me. He's talking about anyone who wants this. Problem is, of course, Satan comes along and says, you can't trust those words in the Bible. And many people say, oh, okay. And that's the end of the story. Another one. In the net. Jesus continues in John's Gospel 14. And where I go you know. And the way you know. Now of course they stumbled through these things. But in in the end they got it. They know the way. And that he is the way and the truth and the life. And there is no other way. Apart from him. Or should I put it this way. Against him. There's no way into heaven against Christ. Yes, there will be, I believe strongly, there will be those in heaven who never heard the gospel, but they, were, they will be judged by a different standard. But it still will not happen without the cross of Christ. And so we observe these first responders to the empty tomb that they thought was going to be full. They fully expected a dead body to be behind that stone that was rolled away by the angel, in which he sat on top of it, (laughs) king of the stone, in a sort of mocking death fashion. Matthew chapter 28 again, verse 6, He is not here, our text, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. This is the angel saying to the first responders to this resurrection, That Jesus is absent from death. Death could not hold him. He is saying this to Mary, the mother mother of one of the disciples, James the Less, and to Salome, the wife of Clopas, another believer. And there were likely other ladies unnamed in the group. And I was going to bring out a list, and if there's time, I'll read it, of the timeline, the sequence of events, which is quite remarkable how... Uh, you know, married Magdalene heads out with them. She goes ahead of them. You know, they're in Jerusalem. It's a, it's a walk from wherever they're living or meeting to the garden tomb. <clears throat> and uh, they could be coming as far away from Bethany. Either way, Mary Magdalene runs ahead and she gets to the tomb first. And she doesn't go in, but she sees a stone rolled back and she runs to tell the apostles. The other two... Uh, the other group of ladies that she was originally with, they then arrive at the tomb. And there's another group coming. But I am going away from what's before me now, which is concentrating on these first responders. Under these circumstances, absence of his body was their proof that he was alive. There was some Roman soldiers were posted as guards. You, you are not going to overcome that fire team or that platoon, whatever was put there. The Jews would not have taken them out. And even if they could, where were their bodies? Well, they could not. For he is risen, we are told. Four words repeated by the angel in verse 7. It was so important, so nice, he said it twice. 
What if it never happened? What if he remained dead? Well, there'd be no Christianity, which the world would applaud. Satan would love that. But the fact remains, he did rise again. He did get up. And those of you who don't believe, God's working on you, else you wouldn't be here now. Uh, you might think you made the decision to come to church, but there were influences stronger than you that you probably did not even detect. This is God's house. What makes it God's house? Him. What happens here? If he's preached, those who come to God's house come to hear from God. Everything else is secondary. Fellowship and prayer and all those things are very important, part of what we do. But the primary thing is we want to hear from God. Take that away. What, do you, what good is prayer? What good is, what good is fellowship? What good is anything else? We come to hear from him. Speak to us. Love on us. Address our sin. Who would you rather address your sin? God or your neighbor? God or your pastor? God or someone else? David said, I'll put my hands, I'll put my life in God's hands. I don't want men judging me. I'll let God do that. And, of course, God, when he judges in this life, it is to find a solution without throwing away the facts, the truths surrounding us and him. And there had never been a resurrection from the dead until this event right here. Oh, Lazarus, of course, he died. He was dead four days, but he was resuscitated, not resurrected. He still had to die again. He was not given a resurrected body where he could overcome this life and sin, which is the curse, and the curse of sin is death. He would still have to go back to the tomb at some point, but not Christ. This was final. He is the first fruits in that regard. So when Christ rose, he was beyond all limitations of flesh and blood, life as we know it, and that's where we who believe are headed. And so in that barricaded upper room, they had nothing to preach until they saw the risen Christ. There was really nothing for them to say, nothing for them to do but be dead in their faith. Everything was dead. His teachings, his miracles, his holiness was just now just a, a memory. No follower of Jesus Christ has anything to say to anybody about Jesus Christ without the resurrection. And I think, I think sometimes we Christians, we lose sight of that. We get so caught up in, in trying to get out of the problems that come our way in this world. Reigns on the just and the unjust, Jesus said. The same Blight that is on the unbeliever is going to be on you. And I want you to function in the midst of it. It's no surprise that so many of our prayers to escape hardship are not granted. So that we face the same things the world faces, but we face it with Christ. And in the end, he makes all things beautiful in his time. And every time someone does not rise up from the grave, they're demonstrating the power of Christ. Because he did. It is that impossible. Only one time it could happen. And it was not to be duplicated for every generation outside of faith. He could do it and none other can. A miracle is an event that locks out human science. 
A miracle goes beyond a detailed explanation. A miracle says something has happened that we cannot account for. It is spiritual. It cannot be duplicated in a laboratory. It cannot be repeated in a church, not without God. It cannot be claimed by another. There will be false signs. There are false signs. And these are used to filter out those who receive what the risen Christ has to say and those who do not. Because it comes down to truth and not miracles. Are you going to continue to believe in Christ if you don't see the miracles? Are you going to believe in him because he is real? Because you've met him. And that's the thing with a born-again believer. We've met Christ in our heart. I'll get back to some of that. The church alone proclaims this. And by church, I mean believers, both local and universal. There would have been no apostolic martyrs without this truth. There would be no preaching of the virgin birth. There would be no preaching of the virtuous life of Christ. There would be no preaching of the vicarious death of Christ on the cross. Vicarious, that means in the place of someone else. He died as me, for me, so that I could be forgiven. There'd be no preaching of his resurrection and his return. But we do preach these things. We do proclaim them. We have exclusive rights for this. When the devil tried to preach the truth about Christ in the scriptures, Jesus told them to be muzzled. You want to hear it. Acts chapter 28, 26 there the Apostle Paul is standing before the ruler, the civil ruler, and, and, and uh, Agrippa, the ruler amongst the people in that part of the world at the time, non-Roman ruler, and though under Rome's authority. And Paul laid it out to them. They said, Paul, you almost convinced me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I wish that you would all together be like me, and not only you, all of you, except for these chains. I don't wish any hardship on you. I want you to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. There's a knowledge of Christ that doesn't save. There's a knowledge of Christ that gets things done for Christ. And so Paul, in the middle of his presentation to these people, he says, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Why do you have a problem with that? You must have a teeny God. If he can't raise the dead, he's tiny. If you have a problem with the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. If you have a problem with that verse, you've got a problem with everything else in the Bible. And I don't know how to fix that except to, you know, stare down the elephant in the room. Don't ignore him. You're a sinner and you're a big fat one, too. I don't care how thin you are. You're a fat sinner like the rest of us. What's the solution? Well, make up things about God and make up things about what happens to you after you die. That ought to work. Try that at the airport. Just jump out the window. <laughs> make up things about flying. I wonder if the parachutes come with a return policy. If they don't work, you know, bring it back. Anyway. Because it is so easy to believe substandard things about God, people believe them. You know, rivers are crooked like men because they follow the path of least resistance like men. That's true. Well, what are you going to do about it? You're going to live with it? What will my wife say if I become a believer? What will my husband say if I become a believer? 
Hopefully, they'll become one too. But if not, I'm putting my oxygen mask on. You do what you want to do. I still love you, but I love Jesus more. And I have enough love in me that I can love me, I can love Christ, I can love you, and I can love people I don't even like. Because that's how we're built. So, either repent or resent when told about the risen Lord. You either, you know, we have a single word, get her done. When you face Christ, it's time to get her done. Repent, admit it. He says here that he's risen as he said, no less than six times, Matthew alone in his gospel records Jesus telling his disciples, I'm going to die and I'm going to get up. Of course, this was foreign to them, as it is to many people today. And their attitude was, you know, I wish you'd stop saying that. Peter called him out on it at one point and got yelled at. You know, (laughs) Jesus, get behind me, Satan. This is coming from Satan, Peter, to tell me that I'm wrong. I am Lord. And if I am Lord, as you admit that I am, then you have to submit. And if you don't, where is that coming from? Why did you submit to my life in the first place? Because you reckon. You know what Peter said when he first saw Jesus do a miracle? Depart from me. I am a wicked man. I'm not good enough for this. Thank God, Peter, that Jesus said, No, I will not leave you as I found you. And a relationship was born. Come see the place where the Lord lay. The rolled back stone. It was not rolled back to let Jesus out. He had gone. He didn't need that. Later, we see him walking through walls because of that resurrected body thing going on. It was rolled back so that people could look in, so that you could see. You go to the garden tomb in Israel today, that has got to be the spot. I mean, it fits the biblical criteria, unlike, I mean, there's two of them. There's the Roman Catholic site, which is just a tourist site. Don't go there. Then there's Gordon's uh, Calvary and the garden tomb right next to it. That is the spot. Now, you have to go, go there. You'll find out. Anyway, come see the place where the Lord lay. It was, uh, as I mentioned, open so the disciples could see, so that they take no hope in their hold on Jesus. I don't have any hope on my hold on Jesus. I have all the hope on on his hold on me. It's him holding me up. Not me clinging to him. Although I do cling. Um, when you see Christ in heaven, you're going to see marks on his robe from where I was grabbing it. <laughs> grabbing it and stretching it. Second Timothy, Paul writing to a man named Timothy, was pastor in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city that loved the goddess Diana. They had one of the seven wonders of the world was the Temple of Diana. This thing was so magnificent. It was just about a lie, about something that never really happened. And the people there were fiercely dedicated. In fact, one of the problems of the early church is that people were coming to Christ. They were leaving paganism, and that was upsetting everybody. And so steps were taken to shut them down, both amongst the Jews and the Gentiles alike. It did not work. But it cost a lot of pain and death to believers. Many of you might say, boy, I wish I was a Christian back in those days of Jesus. Yeah, really? You may want to think about that. 
Paul says, for this reason, Timothy, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. That day when I enter into paradise, no more suffering, sorrow, or tears, no more traffic, no more running out of half and half. Life forevermore, unlike anything any of us have ever had. To take a genuine, fresh breath without sin. This is what the tombstone of Christ says to all mankind. He is not here. He's risen. And those who have seen the risen Lord are held by him. And happy to be so. And so we are living either for Christ or ourselves. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, remember, for those of you who may not know, this man, Paul, who wrote, really put so much doctrine into Christianity in his letters in the New Testament. He was a blasphemer. He was totally against Christ, but he was intercepted by Jesus and converted. And he spent the rest of his life being spent for Christ. He said, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. What do you bear on your body? Some of you, you know, I also bear the marks of a foolish youth, male youth in particular, scars and wounds. You know, some of you have ink on your body. I would like to bear the marks of Christ. I'm reserving the canvas for that. The marks of Christ for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. But there's going to be an objection. Satan's going to say, we're going to see about this. Because I'm going to find out where I can hurt you, where I can knock you off this intention, where I can make you ashamed of yourself and hate yourself. Self-loathing is on his menu. And so the slug match is on. And it's a nasty one. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Then he writes an alternative to this. Now that's First Philippians, uh, Philippians 1, chapter 21. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ. So you're either, either living for Christ or for self. The problem is, self is going to run out. When, when, when you finally breathe your last breath, Self is over with. Then what happens? Well, if you want to, just make something up. That ought to happen. Doesn't work here. Why do you think it's going to work when you leave here? Like there's some other universe out there where you just can wish things and, you know, trees are made out of lollipops and you, know, you can just make up your own ending. But that's not reality. We're forced to face the facts that we are sinners and therefore we are accountable to someone, to someone somewhere at some point I am accountable for the things I get wrong that hurt others, that hurt myself. This is what the resurrection has to do with me. This is what it has to do with me. It calls me to live for Christ. Christ says, I'm going to take those sins of yours. And they're going to still be there. I'm not going to charge you with them because I've taken your penalty for you. That's why we love him so much. We're just singing songs to a present Jesus Christ. 
We weren't singing songs to a boyfriend or girlfriend. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But who are we singing to? We're not singing to a memory. We're singing to someone who is very present, very real in our hearts. And so God's answer to sin is death. That's the whole bloody sacrifice thing, the cross. And yet, his answer to death is the resurrection. And the resurrection is not just about Jesus. It's done for me. That's why he's the first fruits. I am the second. And you and all the others that come to Christ will share in this resurrection. God's answer to death. Romans 10, verse 16. Paul writing to the believers who lived in Rome. He had not met most of them yet, some of them. But he writes anyway. And he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? This is the Christian life. Who believes us? We're sounding the alarm. It's more convenient to just plug your ears and say, I don't want to hear it. We all do that at some point, some things. But we can't do that with the most critical things. And the most critical things is what's going to happen to you? What is going to happen? <laughs> I have a friend. He was older than He's still alive. He's 12 years older than I. And I spent a lot of time with him do, do, doing things together, of course. And um, he said to me once, you know, as you get old, a whole lot of things happen to your head. He meant the shape and all, you know, just the scars and things show up on it. They aren't supposed to be there or they weren't there when I was five. And he was very much right. A whole lot of things going to happen to your head. What's going to happen inside your head? It's going to happen inside your heart because they're connected. What's going to happen to you about with this report? Your life. It's going to happen to your head when you die. Not all will believe, so not all will be saved. Choice is up to those who come in contact with the message. Is our message worth delivering if we are hated for delivering it? Absolutely. It is that vital. It is that good. It is worthy. I'm not worthy, but the message is. First Kings is a story of that rotten King Ahab, and his, he was married to Jezebel. She was worse than him. She was the one that really imported idolatry into Israel on a large scale. And King Jehoshaphat was a good king, but King Jehoshaphat was one of those people that liked to have bad friends. Maybe you know a girl that she just likes bad boys, or you know a, a, a guy and he just likes bad girls. That's not a virtue. That is a liability. And it is a heartbreak for those around you. So don't be that way. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are noble, lovely, good report. Well, anyway, Ahab, Jehoshaphat goes with Ahab, and Ahab wants to go to war because he, you know, just messed up. And Jehoshaphat's going to go with him. So the king, the bad king, Ahab, says, well, let's bring out all the fake prophets. These guys have no evidence for what they believe in, but I like what they have to say because it never insults me. And he brings them out, and King Jehoshaphat says, isn't there a prophet of Jehovah here? Yeah, there's one. I hate him. So let's pick it up, 1 Kings 22, verse 8. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man, Micaiah. 
son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of Jehovah. But I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Yeah, because you're evil, punk. That's why. <laughs> but it's just to evil people, do they know they're evil? No. Does Lex Luthor know even the fictitious character, Lex Luthor? Does he know he's the bad guy? And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. Don't say that. Come on. Jehoshaphat was, was like a noodle. <laughs> Instead of saying, the Lord rebuke you. You shouldn't be having these false problems. No, he doesn't want to break the friendship up. He had issues, Jehoshaphat. He's going to be in heaven. I'm going to ask him about this episode. But <laughs> it goes on. Micaiah said, this is the, now the prophet gets to speak. And Micaiah said, as Jehovah lives... Whatever Jehovah says to me, that I will speak. When they try to tell him, now look, remember, you go for what a king, don't tell him anything that's going to hurt his feelings. And so he said, I'm going to tell what God says. So what does he do? He gets up in front and he says, well, Micaiah, should, I, should we go and attack these guys? And Micaiah, oh yeah, sure, go ahead, have a good time. Yeah, God's with you. Very sarcastic about the whole thing. So he has them smacked in the face. So how many times do I have to tell you to tell me the truth? <laughs> Well, if I tell you the truth, you're going to lock me up. He tells him the truth, and he locks him up. He gives him the bread of, you know, misery. So this is uh, how it is, can be for us. We have this message. We have to preach it, even if we get smacked around, incarcerated. Why are we ashamed of the truth? Because other people don't like it. And we care about what other people think about us. Well, you better start thinking more about what Jesus thinks about you than what people think. That doesn't mean we can be lunatics. The church has failed there so often. Have you ever met the Christian that you wanted to just pour ice water on? Or just, you know, how do I shut this guy up? This is lunacy. There's no scriptural fact behind these feelings this person is throwing at me. And the Lord said to me, no, he didn't. He didn't say that. And he go, okay, maybe you've never met. Maybe all the Christians you've met are like me. And you don't know, you can't identify Anyway, he is risen, and the authority behind our message, and that's what we are to preach. This has something to do with me. We cannot see the risen Lord with our eyes, but we can see him enough to encounter him. There's more ways to encounter a living being than with your eyeballs. And that's spiritually. Because God has made man more than what man can see with his eyes. That's what faith is all about. The time will come when there will be no need for faith for believers, but it's not here yet. We'll have to wait until we're in glory. Have you a loved one that has gone on to be with Jesus Christ? At this very moment, they are having a very good day. They are having a day better than ever. I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus said, well, you can go back if you'd like. <laughs> no, I'll just wait. That's what we think about heaven. God has given us power to choose, and to know the invisible, and power to love him. He's given us power to pursue him according to his terms. He has given us the power to love his will. Isaiah the prophet said this, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. He's high and he's lofty because he's worthy. Whose name is holy. Now God speaks through the prophet. I dwell in the high, in the holy place 
with him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God is saying, I can touch man. I can reach you. You're not beyond me. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He, God, has put eternity in their hearts. That's man. That's why you have people following fake gods and into spiritual things. There's this, this spiritual eternity. This whole concept of the spirit realm is in us. What are you going to do with it? Which portal are you going to open? The one that leads upward or some other door? And so, coming to my last point, what we notice from the writing on the tombstone, the epitaph, that the blood of Jesus Christ is the love of God, that the blood of Jesus Christ is the love of Jesus Christ, the resurrected body of Christ is the power of God. I think, again, we sometimes lose sight of what the resurrection is. As I, as I think about it, I'm not sure I have opened up the resurrection teachings enough to unbelievers. I don't think in my witnessing for Christ over the years, I have talked to them enough about the resurrection, direct, using that word, explaining what it means. Maybe because I've lost sight in the power of the resurrection to reach lost souls. What did the first church have? How did they get converts? Did they just go in and say, hey, your religion's wrong, mine is right? That was part of it, but they backed it up. And they did it by preaching the resurrected Jesus Christ. They were mocked for this. Ha ha! The, the king of the Christians is crucified. What king would allow himself such a thing? And what king could get up three days later? There's more to the story. Matthew 28, 7, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and that is the message that they would carry to the lost. It takes faith and the power of God's truth. So I want, as a believer, I want to be firm in my faith towards non-believers, but I don't want to be harsh. Though, if you hold to the truth, some people are going to call you harsh nonetheless if they don't like it. I want to be steadfast in my faith without ever being self-righteous. Look at me. I get it right. You don't. I want to have love without weakness. The world, many people in the world, you know, people take kindness for weakness. If you're too nice, they think you're weak until you punch them in the nose and fix that real quick. No, you do. we don't do that and tell. <laughs> that I could live the sermons I preach. I have preached to me some pretty good stuff. I mean, that's not pride. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it may not come out to you that way, but in my head it's that way. Like, that was real good, Ricky. <laughs> now go do it. And, it's, you know, it's, 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 it spends my life. So, to be used effectively against the works of the devil, I want to practice what I preach, whether I'm a pastor or just a believer. And there's no lesser rank between the two. There was this unceasing emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. I'm almost done. For those of you who don't know, the book of Acts tells what happens after Jesus rose from the dead. Then what happened to the believers? Well, the book of Acts tells us what happened after that. 
and they preached this resurrection of Jesus Christ as often as they could. And while these apostles and these witnesses of his resurrection were still alive, there began to creep into the pulpits false teachers who attacked the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why not not go to church if you don't believe what the church is preaching? Why are people surprised when they come to church and they hear Jesus Christ? Why are they surprised when we read the Bible in church as Christians? What has happened to people? I mean, if you go to a donut shop, and sorry, we have no donuts, but we have got fresh vegetables for you, you'd be pretty upset. So why, when you go to church, you get the gospel? <gasps> well, many churches just say, you know what? Well, let's change teams. Well, keep the uniform. You know, in a, old, those old, old war movies with people like Van Johnson? <laughs> Some of you are like, huh? Anyway, when the, when the bad guys took the uniform of the good guys, you know somebody you liked in the show was going to get killed. And it's still that way. When the enemy puts on the uniform, the right uniform, being the wrong enemy, somebody's going to get hurt. And if you do not know how to pick up that accent from hell, then you're going to stumble. And so we are careful. And this is why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. is because he's, he's attacking back. He's counter-attacking the lies creeping into the, coming out of pulpits. Oh, well, Jesus really didn't die. You know, he wasn't fully dead. He just had a bad migraine or some other dumb thing. And so they wrote, he wrote, he says, listen, I saw Jesus Christ first off. And second, <laughs> the, flesh, the flesh just wants to win, does it not? The spirit wants to win, but like a gentleman. The flesh, the flesh I don't care, I just want to win. Uh, and it, you know, he's constantly fighting anyway. To deny the bodily resurrection of Christ is to no longer be a Christian. Is to deny the faith. Since there is no Christianity without the resurrection, what Christian could you possibly be without believing it? This is a criteria set down for us in the scripture. If you believe, if you confess with your mouth that you are, are a sinner and that God raised Jesus from the dead... And if you don't believe that thing, it's a self-disqualification. Don't go blaming me for saying, oh, you can. I don't really mind that much. As long as I don't run out of half and half in the morning, I'll be all right. (laughs) Believers should know this. You believers should know this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ in your Bible is ascribed to each person of the Trinity. It is that big of a deal. It is ascribed to the Son in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 2, verse 19 and 21. It is ascribed to the Father in Romans 6, verse 4. And it is ascribed to the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, verse 11. There are other places, but you, you have that to starting point. And so we come to church to hear from God. God has said, I have raised my Son from the dead. To confirm to you that I have received the atonement, that your sins can be forgiven because of him and no one else. And so on your tombstone, will it be something like this? Therefore, they said to, uh, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. Will that be your tombstone written by God, your epitaph? He died in his sins. Or, by this resurrection, the believer of every 
uh, every believer this fitting epitaph. Philippians 1.21 again. To die is gain. When I die, I am resurrected. I begin to live. To die is gain. Let's pray. Our Father, may we not ever, we who believe, trivialize the importance of this, this resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning, perhaps you're listening or watching online, perhaps you're here in the church building itself, and you've not opened your heart to Christ. You're so afraid that if you open your heart to Christ, life's going to be miserable for you. When it's actually the other way around, life will take on a meaning that you've never had before. It is Satan. It is the voice of Satan speaking through your flesh. That part of you that does not know God. And he is saying, don't do it. But it is God who says, come. I'm not going to con you into salvation. Or trick you. I'm not going to lure you. I'm just going to invite you. You have a problem with the evidence. Then examine it. But examine it honestly. You would like to open your heart to Jesus Christ. You just make the confession in earnest, the contrite heart. If you, for example, make this prayer with me, and you mean it, God will receive you. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. I ask you to forgive me. There's nowhere else for me to go. There's one Savior, and you are he. Only one died for me. Only one has been worthy for me. Only one has left a word that, though challenging, is trustworthy. And I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. And I ask that from this day forward, would you, that you would not only be the one who saves me from judgment, but also the one who lords over my life right now. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of it. May they have no problem coming up to one of the pastors at the end when we invite and say, I've just opened my heart to Christ. And that pastor will then pray with them, ask them if they've got any initial questions, and that will be it. All these things we commit to your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.